Dr. Garner was correct. We are going to do some exegetical material. And just to, as an overview of what I'm going to cover this morning, I'm going to give you a three-minute review. In case you weren't here last week, you're going to get a whole hour in three, or three to five minutes. So we'll do that. Then I'm going to finish off, just uh, complete the historical picture briefly, probably take around 15 to 20 minutes. And then when I finish with that, I'm going to come back and we're going to look at John Calvin's favorite biblical text that explains the basic structure of union with Christ. And so we are going to get kind of exegetical or biblical in our emphasis toward the end. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reminded that when I write on the board, my goal is for folks at the very end of the room, on the back row, to see that. I've been writing in 10 font, I think, recently. So I'm going to try to change that. But to give you just a quick review of what we covered, when John Calvin addressed the problems with the Roman Catholic Church when it came to the question of justification, when John Calvin addressed the Roman Catholic Church in its claim that Protestants were antinomian, were against law, his baseline response was a theology of union with Christ. And in his theology of union with Christ, remember, it can be represented in a kind of diagrammatic form by a circle and two lines. So in Calvin's theology, you have only blessing in terms of union with Christ. Remember when we opened last week and we looked at book three, chapter one, section one of the Institutes, Calvin said, as long as we remain outside of Christ and he has separated from us all that he has suffered and accomplished for us remains useless and of no value to us. No union with Christ, no redemptive benefits whatsoever. Blessing comes only through virtue of union with Christ by faith wrought by the Spirit. And then we looked more concretely at the structure of that union. And remember, it has a basic two-fold structure. This is fun. Navigating with crutches. You know, overhead would have been good, but I just freeze when I do overhead. I can't teach, I guess. Union with Christ has a twofold structure, so union with Christ brings about a twofold grace. A twofold grace. One, justification, J U S T. The other, sanctification, and I'll abbreviate. Remember, justification addresses what problem occasioned by Adam's sin. To be justified means having the righteousness of Christ reckoned to your account imputed to your account so that you are clothed with the foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is yours. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him you would be what? The righteousness of God. So justification addresses what aspect of sin? Guilt. Sin's guilt. And, and justification, therefore, changes your judicial status before God. Sanctification involves a breach with sin's power over you. When you are sanctified, in terms of the initial application, sin's power is broken once for all. You're no longer a slave to sin. And so sanctification addresses the power or the corruption of sin as an internal reality. Justification addresses sin's guilt. Sanctification addresses sin's corrupting uh, power. 
Justification changes your status. Sanctification changes your condition. Now, in Calvin's theology then, you no sooner receive Christ for justification than you receive Christ for sanctification. Thank you. Remember Calvin's language? These benefits of justification and sanctification are distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous. Distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous. So, here's the question. Calvin would put it this way. Do you want to obtain holiness, freedom from sin's power? Do you want to? What must you first possess? Christ. Turn it on the other way. Do you want to be free from the guilt of sin? If the answer is yes, you must first possess Christ. Because in Christ, justification and sanctification are given distinctly, inseparably, and simultaneously. And so you can't say that Calvin and the theology of the Reformation is antinomian because as soon as you come into union with Christ, you are declared righteous before God and made holy in your life toward God. Now that's Calvin's basic um, theology of union with Christ. What I wanted to do was just map out a couple of brief things from a historical standpoint now, and try to help you see the, the impact that Calvin's theology has on Reformed theology today. Those of us who teach at, say, Westminster Theological Seminary, or more importantly, ministers who serve the church, preaching the word in the PCA, subscribe to the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Westminster Larger and Westminster Shorter Catechisms. These are foundational texts that summarize biblical truth and represent um, a kind of consolidation of the Reformed tradition when it comes to various topics of the faith, like Scripture, Christ, justification, sanctification, etc. And the Westminster Larger Catechism, if you have studied that, um, it enshrines a theology that I call, I call it structurally identical, structurally identical to Calvin's theology. Now, the Westminster Standards are a 17th century document, so we're about 100 years removed from Calvin, more or less. And um, 1643, 1648 are the dates for the Westminster Standards. And what I want you to recognize briefly in terms of the standards in the Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 65, um, Westminster Larger Catechism, 65 through 69, you get these questions and answers that are summarizing the application of redemption. Now listen to how similar the formulation is to what Calvin had to say. Question 65, what special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? Listen to this formulation. Answer. The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. Union and communion. Do you hear how similar that is? The very first thing that's said in terms of Westminster Confession 65 through 69 is union and communion. With Christ. Union and communion 
with Christ. In grace, that's this age. Glory, the age to come. And so there's this very deep kind of redemptive historical um, direction to the Westminster Standards here. Union and communion with Christ in grace now and in glory in the age to come. And the question that's asked then in, in verse 69 to flesh this out is this. What is the communion in grace with the members of the invisible church? What is that communion that believers have with Christ? Now listen to this. The answer to that question is, is this. The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation. Now listen to this. In their justification, adoption, and sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Did you hear that? What, in, in other words, what benefits do you as believers have by virtue of your union with Christ? Well, Westminster um, Larger Catechism 69 says you have justification, I'm going to abbreviate, adoption, AD, uh, abbreviate, and sanctification. You have those benefits in Christ. And you have whatever else in this life, here's the key phrase, manifests that union. Now, here's what I want you to see. The benefits of justification, adoption, and sanctification manifest something more basic. And that more basic something is union and communion with Christ in grace and glory. Now, look at the structure. Calvin has a twofold grace where justification and sanctification are flowing out of something more basic, union with Christ. The Westminster Larger Catechism, 65 through 69, uses a different verb and simply says that justification, adoption, and sanctification manifest something more basic. If you think of it this way, what does, just a rough analogy, what does light manifest early in the morning. It manifests the, the sun, right? Manifests the sun. They, the light waves, as it were, derive from something more basic, namely the sun. In terms of Westminster Confession 65 through 69, justification, adoption, and sanctification manifest something more basic, manifest something from which those benefits themselves derive, namely Union with Christ. Now, last week, I just want you to—I just want to point out that this is the most. If if I'm ever asked, like, a, I went up for licensure in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, frightening thing. That's frightening, and 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 I'm going up for ordination coming in February, so I'd covet your prayers because they've got a thousand questions, and ninety-nine uh, percent of them are trick questions. But um, when, I, <laughs> but. But when, when I'm asked how I like to relate union with Christ to justification and these other benefits, my favorite verb choice is, well, those benefits manifest what is most foundational, namely my union with the living Christ, the Christ who died and who was raised, to whom I am united by faith. 
Now, you remember last week, Dr. Garner, and I'll work through this a little more quickly since I previewed it, asked me a question about the Lutheran tradition, the Lutheran view um, of how benefits are derived. And I went through it really quickly, and I just want to read some primary sources to you and map this out in about 10 minutes and show you the basic differences here. And here, here, here it is. It's, it's a very, I'll just schematize it and then um, give you the sources if you're interested. The Lutheran tradition takes one of these benefits, namely justification, that for Calvin is a fruit of union, is something that flows from union, that the Westminster Standards say manifests something more basic, namely union. The Lutheran tradition takes a benefit, and in this case it is justification, and argues that this is the number one benefit, the number one saving reality when it comes to the application of redemption. I think I read this. If you're interested, if, if you're this kind of person, I'll give you where this occurs. This statement occurs in John Theodore Muller's Christian Dogmatics, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, Christian Dogmatics, on page 320. Here's what he says. As soon as the sinner by faith accepts God's general pardon, he is personally justified. Justification is thus by grace alone without works, and it puts the believer into possession of all the merits or blessings secured by Christ's perfect obedience. The justified sinner has entered into the state of grace and peace in which he is assured of his present and final salvation. In other words, the very first redemptive reality that you have as a believer is justification. Christ's righteousness reckoned to you by faith. Now, we agree with the Lutheran tradition on this narrow point that justification is by the imputation of righteousness. There's no real disagreement with the Lutheran tradition on that narrow point. We agree with them. But then, when we talk about the way justification functions, I'm going to do this intentionally, justification is the source of two blessings, two basic blessings. On the one hand, the language is this, that justification effects the mystical union. Effects causes the mystical union. And then justification produces sanctification. Listen to the language. Muller again. Justification effects the mystical union by which the Holy Trinity dwells in the believer. It, the mystical union, is the result of justification, not the cause of it. Justification then produces sanctification. Sanctification follows justification as its effect. Now, do you see the difference? I did this last week in a real brief way toward the end of class in about five minutes, but I want you to recognize that on the Lutheran view, justification serves the basic function that union with Christ serves in the Reformed tradition. They They are extremely different, extremely different in terms of their principles of organization. Justification effects mystical union and produces sanctification 
And in terms of the rhetorical statements that are made by the Lutherans, here's how serious they are about the doctrine of justification. Listen to this language. It requires little proof. This is Muller again, M-U-E-L-L-E-R. It requires little proof that the article of justification by faith is the central doctrine of the entire Christian religion. The entire Christian religion. He also says, in Lutheran theology, the article of justification is the chief article by which the church stands or falls, and it is the apex of all Christian teaching. And then summarizes by saying, the doctrine of justification by faith in the crucified and risen Christ is the entire gospel. Now, here's what's what's problematic about that statement. Remember last week when we were talking about what Calvin would say about this idea of being justified prior to and apart from union with Christ, what would he say to the Lutheran at that point? He would ask a kind of rhetorical question, how am I to have a benefit of the gospel apart from union with Christ? See, justification, if I could put it this way, it's not a thing that you get, but it's something that derives from your union with a person, namely Christ. You first are engrafted into Christ, and then in him you are justified, adopted, and sanctified. And I don't remember how much I said about this last week, um, so you can remind me, but um, how much did I talk to you about Rome and the Lutheran tradition when it comes to justification producing sanctification. Very little? Okay, let me just remind you of this. I'll do this fairly quickly. Do you remember how the Roman Catholic Church views justification as being this inherently renovative process? Do you remember that diagram I had on the board? When you're justified, grace is infused, and you start producing meritorious works that commend you before God. And Justification is a lifelong process of moving from your first justification in baptism to your final justification at the end of the age. In other words, it's a process that involves you being renovated, renewed, and producing good works that please God. In other words, justification is an inherently renovative process for Rome. That, that was on the board last week. don't have room for it here. Here's, what, here's what's troubling to me. According to the Lutheran tradition, justification has an inherently enlivening dimension to it. Justification causes or produces sanctification. Now, if the fundamental error of the Roman Catholic Church is that on on this particular point, is that justification is a lifelong process by which you are renewed to perform good works. And the Lutheran view argues that an inherent dimension of justification itself is that it it contains within itself a renovative reality that flows from it, sanctification. My concern is that there's something much closer to Rome in the Lutheran view 
than there is in the Reformed view. Because in the Reformed view, justification does not produce sanctification. Sanctification does not produce justification. These things derive from your union with Christ. And so there's something, uh, there's something that's a, a little bit uh, troubling about this Lutheran view that's not as clear as you might think um, uh, upon first blush. And the irony of this is that on the Lutheran view, justification is given priority in order to avoid the problems of Rome. Question? Well, no, I don't think so. I, because I think what they would say is your judicial status is settled right off the bat, right up here. You're justified. Nothing assails that, but that justifying righteousness or that verdict of justification then has some kind of quality within it that affects union and produces sanctification. So they wouldn't say that, it, that works righteousness is what's grounding your doctrine of justification. But the funny thing is, is whenever they ascribe to justification some inherently renovative feature, like sanctification, the line between the forensic and the renovative starts to get kind of blurry, especially whenever it is that justification produces these renovative qualities. It's just not clear. Yes, sir? We're, we're looking, we're looking uh, Muller's... 20th century, early 20th century, and Francis Pieper, P-I-E-P-E-R, he's kind of like the Charles Hodge of their tradition. He had a four-volume work in the 19th century, and uh, Muller's, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, his Christian dogmatics is a one-volume condensed summary of Francis Pieper's work. Yes? No, Luther was not. The strange thing about the Lutheran tradition is that Luther had a much more a robust view of union with Christ, used marriage uh, metaphors all over the place to talk about the intimate bond that exists between Christ and his church, and had a very robust doctrine of justification as well, but would typically locate justification within union. Following Luther's development in Melanchthon and the developing Reformed tradition, there was a shift away from what I consider to be something more congenial Calvin that you found in Luther to this. And a, a lot of the reason why you had that move or that shift um, is, a, is a polemic that's developing against Rome. Rome says justification is by works. Well, we'll show them. We'll get justification wholly apart from any works, wholly apart from union, as a thing in itself, and we'll safeguard the integrity of justification. And typically, this is just a rule that I've found to be pretty, pretty reliable. Anytime you make a theological move for wholly defensive purposes, you're going to introduce some problems that you can't foresee. And Calvin is much more of a constructive biblical theologian, and the Lutheran tradition on this point is much more polemical and defensive, and I think it gets them into trouble. Yes, sir? Well, I think one after the other, because the language of First, this occurs, and then this occurs. Let me give you a, a quotation from Gerhardus Voss, and I'll just rely on Voss because I think he's right here. Um, listen to the way he says it, and, and this speaks directly to your question. Gerhardus Voss, who is, he should be on everyone's top five favorite theologian list. Um, I'm kidding, he's on mine. Uh, but in a, book, in a book entitled Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation, 
uh, on page 256, he says this. By faith, the Christian is a member of the covenant of grace, and that faith has a wide outlook, a comprehensive character, which not only points to justification, but also to the benefits which are in Christ. Here's the answer that Voss gives. Whereas the Lutheran tends to view faith one-sidedly, only in its connection with justification, for the Reformed Christian, it's saving faith in all the magnitude of the word. According to the Lutheran, the Holy Spirit first generates faith in the sinner who temporarily still remains outside of union with Christ. Then, justification follows faith, and only then, in turn, does the mystical union with the mediator take place. See, he had been reading these guys. And he said, but the covenantal or reformed view is the very reverse. One is first united to Christ. Who's he following? Calvin. The mediator of the covenant by a mystical union, which finds its conscious recognition by faith. By this union with Christ, all that is in Christ is simultaneously given. Now, when you read through the Lutheran tradition, it's very hard to, to get the impression that justification and mystical union and sanctification occur simultaneously because of the language of effecting and producing things that follow. Um, and so on that view, that's, that would be those verb choices are the reason why Voss and many others in the Reformed tradition would see a temporal feature here. First, you're justified. Then and only then, justification being present it produces sanctification and affects the mystical union. Question? Luther having preceded John Calvin, did he write about Luther himself? The, first, the second question first, about those who came after Luther. See, the, the whole point here is that this isn't a Calvin versus Luther debate as much as it is Calvin versus, and this is the more technical way to put it, the post-Reformation Lutheran tradition. In other words, those following after Luther, beginning basically with Melanchthon. And so Calvin's not talking about the structural differences between Luther and himself when it comes to union and justification. That's not even on the horizon. What's in view here is, let's just say, Lutheranism uh, from the you know, very end of the 16th century forward, after Luther had died. Is a is a one way to try to put it. No, nothing that I've seen. Yes, I've not seen that in Luther. They were, they were, and that's why it's so disheartening to see such a wide divergence between the two traditions after Luther passes. And that's what makes you scratch your head, and you you say, "Well, what happened?" Well, a certain. Um, trajectory within the Lutheran tradition following Melanchthon, not as much as Luther, accounts for this difference. So Luther and Calvin, I think, are much closer on this than um, obviously the post-Reformation tradition. Yes, sir? Well, see, Calvin sees them as simultaneous, right? He's He's just, those two lines that derive down are simply to help us recognize that union with Christ is broader than either justification or sanctification. Uh, so there isn't a temporal... No, not for Calvin. Okay. 
Not for Calvin. And if I had it on the board, I did last week, and I should have put it up again. But these benefits are, um, are distinct and separable and simultaneous with union and in relation to one another. Good question. Now, here's what I want to do um, in, the, in the time that's remaining. If you're ever asked this, I think you can clearly verify this by primary sources. I seriously doubt you'll ever be asked this. But if you are asked on the street, if uh, those guys who take surveys about what Reformed Christians believe, all four of them, are, <laughs> are, are, are out on the street and they ask you, what was John Calvin's favorite biblical text when it comes to his theology of union with Christ? What would it be? Cheater. Cheater. Of course, Dr. Garner knows. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. If you have a Bible, you can look at it, and I'm going to make just some comments. And here's what I want you to remember for Calvin. Calvin's thesis is this. Let me try to put his thesis in a different way. Here's a new way of putting it. Christ embodies the benefits that he imparts. Jesus Christ embodies the benefits that he imparts. Put a different way, the benefits of redemption are found in Christ himself. Not outside of him. They're not impersonal things that exist apart from Christ. They are act, the benefits of the gospel are actually the um, the reality that Christ crucified and raised has become for us. That's the way Calvin's thinking about it. They're not abstract things, but they're realities that come through virtue of union with Christ. And here it is. I'm not going to read the whole thing in context because it takes too much time. But in verse 30, this is Calvin's favorite, you read this. Of him, or of his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us from God wisdom, and righteousness, God's wisdom from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I'm going to read it kind of more literally from the Greek. Um, Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now, Calvin looks at that text, and in his 1537 and 38 Catechism remarks as follows. Listen to this. The scripture teaches that Christ has been made for us not only righteousness, but sanctification. Hence, we cannot receive through faith his righteousness without embracing at the same time that sanctification. Why? Because the Lord in one same alliance which he has made with us in Christ promises that he will be propitious toward our iniquities, he will forgive our iniquities, and will write his law on our hearts. See, Calvin's saying that if you begin with union with Christ, you no sooner take Christ for justification than that you take him for sanctification. And this is because Christ has become these things for us. Christ has become these things for us. Verse 30, notice, just to comment briefly on it, that of his doing or of him, 
This indicates the ultimately sovereign source of the believer's union with Christ. It is God's activity and nothing resident in your flesh that accounts for your union with Christ. It is God's sovereign doing that you are in Christ Jesus. That language there, in Christ Jesus, is kind of Pauline shorthand that summarizes the Christian life. If Paul's going to talk about the Christian life, his starting point is always going to be in Christ Jesus. It's a comprehensive formulation that sums up the multifaceted reality of the Christian life. You are in Christ Jesus. One good proof text for that, Ephesians 1.3. Listen how global and comprehensive. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You hear that? There's no blessing in this age that can be given apart from Christ. And in Christ, every blessing that can be given is given to you right now. And by the way, that's why the prayer of Jabez, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. Remember the subtitle to the prayer of Jabez? Breaking through to the blessed life. Beloved, the blessed life has already broken through to you. And it's in Christ. There's no additional breakthrough that you need. No additional prayers that you need to pray. You are in Christ Jesus. And every spiritual blessing is yours in heavenly places in him. Now, it's in that context then that the Apostle Paul says, of his doing you are in Christ, blessed in Christ. And notice where where does Paul begin? See, I find this amazing. Where does he begin? He begins where Calvin began, and he begins where the Westminster Standards begin. He says it's God's doing that you are what? United to Christ, in Christ Jesus. Remember, the priority is always on union with Christ. Paul begins that. Then Paul works from the general union with Christ to the particular. Look in your Bible there. He says, of his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Greek text, but in your in certain translations, uh, go ahead. the The ESV blew this one. I'm so sorry. I, I love the ESV, but um, there's a there's a particular Greek construction here. Take uh, high if you want to know what it is. That, that is best translated, and, the, and the, um, the NASB gets this right, best translated, that is, or, um, you know, to elaborate what this wisdom is, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The way your ESV reads, you would expect there to be in uh, perfect succession, wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Oh, humor me on this. I'll read the Greek to you. And just, just listen, and I'll, I'll translate. Just listen to this. Um, 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 of him you are in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek is has egenethe Sophia hemen apotheu, um, who became wisdom from God for us. There's the sentence. Then you have a comma, and then it's dikaiosune um, tekai, that is 
dikaiosune, righteousness, hagiasmas, holiness, kai apolutrosis, redemption. The, the, the Greek just doesn't bear that out. Um, tekai should be understood as a that is or elaborating what wisdom means. They're not just to be presented in a series. I don't, I don't like the, the um, ESV on that. And, and here's, here's why. Um, theologians like, um, commentators like uh, Simon Kistemacher and Gordon Fee, they pick up on the, the unique structure of the Greek sentence here. And they say that what Paul does is he, he says Christ has become wisdom for us. And then the three qualities that follow, the three nouns that follow, further define the wisdom that's in view. In other words, Christ has become wisdom for us. That is, more concretely, more specifically, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Um, Gordon Fee says that these are three distinct aspects of what Christ has become for us as wisdom from God. That is, the aspect of righteousness, holiness, and redemption. But even if I am wrong about the ESV's translation, here's the point. The wisdom that Christ has become for us cannot be defined apart from the categories of righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So let's see if Calvin's formula uh, works here. In light of 1 Corinthians 1.30, do you want righteousness reckoned to your account? As a believer, you better. <laughs> I do. We need it, right? What must you first possess? Because he has become righteousness for you. Okay? Do you want sanctification or holiness? Good. I do too. What must you first possess? Jesus Christ. You must be in him. Because he's become that for you too. Um, Paul elaborates in uh, Romans 6, uh, 10 and 11. Just as Christ died to sin and now lives to God, so you consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See how that works? In him, you're alive to God and you're dead to sin. Do you want redemption? You must first possess Christ. Now, in him, therefore, let me, let me try to put it this way. If you have righteousness, holiness, and redemption, what does that righteousness, holiness, and redemption manifest? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. You are in Christ Jesus first. And he's become for you every benefit that you need in terms of the gospel. If I, if I could try to put it this way, the wisdom that Christ has become for us is explained in these distinct yet inseparable categories of righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so Calvin says this. Calvin says this. And put this together with what we've looked at in Westminster Larger Catechism. He says this. Since the question concerns only righteousness, and sanctification, let us dwell upon these. Although we may distinguish them, Christ contains both of them inseparably 
in himself. Do you wish then to attain righteousness in Christ? You must first possess Christ. But you cannot possess him without being made partaker in his sanctification because he cannot be divided in pieces. Hence, he bestows both of these gifts, righteousness and holiness, at the same time, the one never without the other. That's from his Institutes, um, Book 316, 1, 797 and 98. Jesus Christ contains within himself every benefit that we receive in union with him. To be in Christ is to be in the one who has himself become the crucified and resurrected embodiment of the gospel. See, and this is why Paul can speak of Christ's death and resurrection in Romans 1-4 as the gospel. That's why I can do the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Christ crucified and raised is the gospel. And if you want the benefits of the gospel, you must be in him. You must be found in him. Now this might change a little bit the way you tend to think about the benefits of the gospel. Sometimes in more popular presentations that have been influenced a little bit more by the Lutheran side of the, of the, the board there, the gospel is thought of as a kind of abstract set of benefits that you get. Uh, benefits in a causal series with one another. And the job of theology is to determine which benefit causes the other and which comes first. And justification and sanctification and adoption are somehow logically related to one another. That's, that's a popular way that you hear this presented. That is popular but it's not biblical. The biblical way to think about this is that you are in Christ Jesus and he has become for you righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Apart from him, you have no righteousness, holiness, nor redemption. In him, you have it all. And what this does for, um, for you as a believer is this. Um, the gospel is not about, let me try to put it this way, the gospel's not about becoming accustomed to any particular benefit. Um, Gerhard Ford, um, who's a, a prominent Lutheran theologian in one of those five views of sanctification, one of those books, he said that, that, the, that the Christian life, sanctification, is getting used to your justification, getting used to a benefit. I don't want you to think that way. I want your Christian life to, to this. If you're going to adjust to anything, adjust to this. You are in Christ Jesus. And in him, every benefit that can be given has been given to you. Now, apart from him, no benefit can be given. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 is one of those key texts that bears this out. And it changes a little bit the way we think about redemption but it changes it for the good. You are to go to a living person, crucified and raised, who has become the gospel for you. And in him, you have every spiritual benefit. Did I see a hand getting ready to go up? Yes, sir. Anyone? Any questions? We have about five minutes. Yes, sir. You know, that's, that's interesting. There's, uh, there, the, the question is, does, does recognition of lordship or um, 
our messianic identity as Savior, which comes first. You know, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd, I'd like us to think that through. I'll tell you what my gut instinct is. My gut instinct is that when you turn to Jesus as Savior, it's because you've recognized him as Lord. And when you confess him as Lord, it's because you have known or come to know that he's Savior. I might try to navigate that one. I'm fear and trembling here. But I might try to navigate that debate by saying that um, just as your in, just as benefits are distinct and separable and simultaneous, my instincts would say that um, recognition of Jesus as Lord and Savior might be joined together by an indissoluble tie. But that's that. That you, you've got a great point, though. You never want to t- talk about Savior without Lord. I'm with you on that, and, and never, never do that. That's a good point. Um, other questions? Dave? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. The, the question, could we speak of Jesus being sanctified? Well, very interestingly, to, to get through the back door, it's very interesting that Paul uses the same verb in 1 Timothy 3.16, um, which is translated justified in his corpus, and he applies it to Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus appeared in the flesh was justified in the spirit. You say, why did he need to be justified? Well, the basic answer is that he was given over to the guilt of sin as a substitute for us. Jesus was truly reckoned guilty for your sin. Did you know that? It's not a, it's not a fiction. God took all of your sin in its full magnitude and he laid it on Jesus. And he bore it. And he has separated that sin, taken it as far from you as the east is from the west. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. He bore your guilt. When he rose from the dead, the very, what's the very antithesis of condemnation? Justification. He was justified in his resurrection, shown to be the righteous one. Likewise, it's very interesting that in Romans 6, Paul speaks about Jesus in Romans 6, 9 through 11 as dying to what? Dying to sin. When Jesus was in the grave, what, had, what bound him in the grave? Death is a consequence of sin. He was bound by death because of sin. Not his own sin. But he was incapacitated, dead, because of sin. When he rose from the dead, Paul said he died to sin once for all and now lives to God. That is the fundamental paradigm for understanding sanctification. And Paul makes the connection explicit in 6.11. He says, just as Christ died to sin and now lives to God, so you likewise consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. From texts like that, we are warranted in speaking of Jesus resurrection as being his sanctification with this one basic qualification. When we are sanctified, we're previously personally sinful. When we are justified, we are previously personally guilty. When Jesus was justified and Jesus was sanctified, it was in his resurrection, by his resurrection, but not because of his own personal guilt 
or corruption, but because of ours. And so the, the very basis for our being sanctified, namely dead to sin, alive to God, or justified, free from condemnation and possession of righteousness, that obtains for us because Jesus was first raised and justified, raised and sanctified, in Romans 1.4, raised and adopted. And it's a beautiful truth. As goes your Savior and Lord, so go you. Just as it was with Christ, so it is with you. Christ justified, Christ adopted, Christ sanctified, and then these benefits are yours in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship even now, that you would conform us to Christ's likeness, that you would strengthen us and bless us, and that you would help us to hear your word as it is proclaimed. Thank you for a theology of union with Christ. Thank you so much for the person of Christ who has become for us in his resurrection um, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Cause us to rest in him and find our hope in him alone. And bless us as we contemplate his glory and grow in our union and communion with him. In Jesus' name, amen.